here comes the magic. You remember from last time, folks. The third of the chord is where the magic happens, and this is where we determine the major or minor tonality. So in this case, we're going to put a major third on. That will be the second fret of this E string. It's going to be an F sharp. And when we put the F sharp on, then suddenly we have a D major chord. What a jolly little chord. But, as you know, if we take that major third and move it down to a minor third, in this case an F, then we have a D minor chord. A sad little chord. If we wanted to add some ambiguity, we could make it into a sus chord. In this case, if we take that major third and move it up to the G, then we have a D sus four. Or, if we take our finger off of the E string altogether and just play that E open, then we have a D. Oh, wait. Oh, I see what you did there. You almost made me play it, didn't you? But as we all know, that chord is a thought crime on YouTube. Another video they claimed was me playing a D sus2 chord, a beautiful chord, which is obviously copyrighted because it's the first chord of Stop This Train. So, I cannot explain how to play a slapping technique because, yeah, a D sus2 chord is copyrighted material. Yeah. Now, for those who don't know, that's Paul Davids, a YouTuber with an extremely popular channel, over 1.2 million subscribers who recently uploaded a video on how today's copyright policy impacts me, talking about some of the most egregious copyright violations that he has been flagged for on his channel, simply delivering guitar lessons and music uh, theory uh, to his subscribers, including having the audacity to show people how to play a D-sus-2 chord, which was, as we all know, the opening chord of whatever particular song ended up uh, setting off the copyright uh, flag. Although it has also been used in, to be fair, about a million other songs. <laughs> it's just ridiculous on his face. He talks about some other examples, including a 15-minute video that he did where, for a few seconds, he plays one eight-note lick from an Eagle song, which, again, is enough to set off the copyright violation filter and uh, gets not, not his video demonetized, but all the advertising revenue to go to Universal Music Group or whatever label claims to own those particular eight notes. Uh, and this is not, by any means, an uncommon story. If you follow any sort of music theory, music teaching, mu music uh, channels on YouTube, you will have heard these types of stories from creators at some point. Uh, and even if you're not interested in music specifically, this still affects a ridiculous amount of content on GooTube. Um, for example, I did mention once, briefly a long time ago, but it's relevant here, uh, guy gets bogus YouTube copyright claim on birds singing in the background. Yes, even birds singing, birds chirping can be uh, copyright claimed by various... Well, I mean, there's there's people who make those CDs of, you know, nature sounds, and if they put that into the content ID uh, system that YouTube has set up, then when it hears a certain bird chirp, then, oh, that's, that's owned by this company, which created this CD. You could say to yourself, well, yes, this is all horrible, but this fundamentally doesn't get at the root of copyright itself. I mean, this isn't about copyright per se as an idea. It's about one particular instantiation of that idea through a particular system that's been set up 
by a company that resides in California to conform to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act passed in the 1990s, which provides a safe harbor to platforms like YouTube as long as the people uploading content to their uh, their system that may be infringing copyright, as long as YouTube or whatever platform makes a good faith effort to remove that content when it's pointed out to them or come to a acceptable agreement with the copyright holder, like sending advertising revenue their way or whatever it is. So YouTube has set up this system that conforms to that so that ultimately they can continue operating and uh, are not going to be sued into oblivion and blah, blah, blah. So this is a particular instantiation of a particular set of rules that have been put into place to conform to a certain law that was passed in a certain jurisdiction. It doesn't say anything about copyright itself. And you may have a point there. In fact, it is tempting when one starts to broach the topic of intellectual property and its deeper meaning, uh, copyright, patent, trademarks, and trade secrets, uh, all falling under this umbrella. Although they're, they're very different things with different legal histories and, and applications and different points to be made about each one of those forms of intellectual property. But it is tempting when we're broaching this subject to start talking about some of these most ridiculous examples. For example, in the copyright realm, something like what Paul Davids was pointing out there, or in the patent realm, for example, something like uh, the ridiculous, uh, just mind-blowingly insane patents that you can, that have been registered in the U.S. Patent Office. For example, United States Patent 5443036, method of exercising a cat, essentially using a laser pointer to make a cat run around. <laughs> uh, United States Patent 6025810, a hyperlight speed antenna, which uh, talks about how one could send signals at a speed faster than light. You know, I mean, assuming we do come up with a way to break the laws of physics. <laughs> and United States Patent 3936384, religious soap. And the abstract for that is simply a soap bar, which is embossed with a religious design on one side and a prayer on the other side. Yeah, that's patentable. And uh, those ridiculous patents will give us a chuckle. Um, we might point at m more substantial and uh, more uh, patents that have a more, uh, more of a hindrance overall that we can point to, like Amazon attempting to patent the one-click purchase. Well, yeah, making a click to purchase something is just inherently patentable, isn't it? Of course not. But uh, we could turn to trademark and ridiculous trademark suits. Uh, for example, the color orange Hershey and Mars settle trademark dispute in which, of course, the Hershey company is uh, suing people like Mars Inc. for having the audacity, once again, to use the color orange too prominently in a candy bar packaging when, of course, everyone knows orange is Reese's. Reese's Pieces has the the, the trademark on orange packaging for candy. I mean, everyone knows that. And how dare you come out with a candy bar that uses orange? Or uh, probably one of the funniest headlines of all time, certainly uh, up there in terms of APNews.com from February 18th, 1989, Restaurant Trademarks Bozo. Bozo the Clown, unhappy. Yes, uh, again, there are a lot, there are no end to examples like this that we can look at and laugh at. But that don't seem to really strike at the core of the matter. What really is intellectual property? How does it really function? Is it really justified? On what basis is it justified? How does it function? Is it a net gain or a net hindrance? And should that matter? I mean, fundamentally, is it just? 
These are all the real questions that we want to start stabbing at today. So let's get back to the real question, which is the base question underlying all of this. The question, what is intellectual property? And that is a good question. But I think the first thing we have to understand is that intellectual property is not property. The basic problem with patent and copyright as state-granted monopoly privileges, right? They're ex explicitly designed to protect people and companies from competition. As I mentioned, the holder of the patent or copyright can use state force against potential competitors. It's basically a completely fused, confused notion, which is an outgrowth of the mercantilist ideas, which were anti-competitive of the last several hundred years. It's also based upon the confused idea that it is sometimes wrong to learn or to actually use information in deciding how you want to use your own property. That is your own scarce resources that you have property rights in. That is wrong to copy or to emulate or to compete in some contexts. Now what it does is it, it uses the language of property rights in trying to say there's property rights by virtue of these laws in information and in patterns and in designs. But remember, the entire function of property, the purpose of property, is to address the problem of natural scarcity in the real world that we live in, not the world of cocaine. But ideas and knowledge and recipes and designs are just knowledge that we have. Unlike scarce resources, they are not scarce. And they can be used over and over and over again, infinitely, and they can be used at the same time by an infinite number of people without diminishing the other people's ability to do the same. So, for example, if I and my neighbor both want to make um, uh, a chocolate cake, then we cannot use the same mixing bowl and wooden spoon and eggs and flour and ingredients. These are scarce resources, and we each need to own our own separate ingredients and capital facilities to make the cake in. But we can both use the exact same recipe at the same time, even if one of us learned it from observing the other. There is no conflict in the use of knowledge. But patent and copyright try to impose scarcity on things that are non-scarce. It tries to make them more scarce. Now, this is perverse. Because the free market is doing the opposite when it comes to actual scarce goods. Things that are in short supply are not sufficiently abundant supply like food and energy and houses and shelter and clothing um, are in natural short supply or scarce supply. But the free market strives to make them more abundant in the face of scarcity. We're trying to overcome this unfortunate fact of scarcity. An IP right really gives a third party who holds the IP the right to control other people's scarce resources. So, for example, in the recent case, the American singer Beyonce has been sued by a Belgian dancer because Beyonce used moves in, in a music video, dance moves, that are similar to the ones that were in an earlier um, video by the Belgian dancer and the Belgian dancer's group. Now, if she prevails, then... She will either get a court order telling Beyonce that you cannot use your body in this way or that will take some of the money from Beyonce's bank account, which she owns, and give it to, um, to them. Um, so the fundamental root of this question about intellectual 
monopoly, not property, is is not about the utilitarian. Does this is there a net economic gain? But even from that perspective, it is a failed and flawed argument. Um, although it is still propounded to this day, and as I say, we've been propagandized uh, our entire lives to accept this argument, so that people can actually watch something like the dumbest propaganda video ever i.e. the recent presentation by the EU Intellectual Property Office, our good friends at the European Union bureaucracy monstrosity. Yes, there is such a thing as the EU IPO, and they did recently produce a propaganda video that is so laughable. I cannot believe anyone could possibly watch that with a straight face, but they posit not only that intellectual property laws are a, a spur to, and a, to growth and innovation in the economy. No, no, they, they take it several steps further. They say that the only reason that creative works exist, the only reason we have songs and, and movies and, and uh, software and all of these things, the only reason is because intellectual property laws exist. You have to see at least a few minutes of that ridiculous video to really to, to really wrap your mind around the utter non nonsense that is being propounded under the name of these intellectual property laws. The act of creation is surrounded by a fog of myths. Myths that creativity comes via inspiration, that original creations break the mold, that they're the products of geniuses and appear as quickly as electricity can heat a filament. A creativity isn't magic. It happens by applying ordinary tools of thought to existing materials. And the soil from which we grow our creations is something we scorn and misunderstand, even though it gives us so much. And that's copying. Put simply, copying is how we learn. We can't introduce anything new until we're fluent in the language of our domain. And we do that through emulation. For instance, all artists spend their formative years producing derivative work. Bob Dylan's first album contained 11 cover songs. Richard Pryor began his stand-up career doing a not-very-good imitation of Bill Cosby. And Hunter S. Thompson retyped The Great Gatsby just to get the feel of writing a great novel. Nobody starts out original. We need copying to build a foundation of knowledge and understanding. And after that, things can get interesting. Now, that's a short clip from the 2015 documentary, Everything is a Remix, which makes the point that everything is a remix and that all creativity involves copying in some form or other, standing on the shoulders of giants, as Isaac Newton, of course, said, asterisk, he stole that phrase from someone else. <laughs> there, there's nothing new under the sun, as I'm sure you've heard before, and it is the height of hubris to imagine that you can own an idea a concept, a chord, a word, because you invented it out of whole cloth from your magnificent brain. Everything in the world of ideas and noumena are borrowed and copied and appropriated and transformed, uh, but certainly borrowed and copied and appropriated from the creative commons that does exist of humanity. And that is an important concept because... Let's follow the intellectual property train of thought to its inevitable, absurd conclusion that literally every idea, every thought, every invention, well, we must have to pay someone for the privilege of using these words that were 
invented out of whole cloth by the people before us. You think I'm being facetious. You think this is a straw man argument. No, there are IP proponents that literally argue this. The most radical of all IP proponents is Andrew Joseph Kalambos, whose ideas, to the extent that I understand them, border on the absurd. Kalambos believed that man has property rights in his own life, primordial property, and in all non-procreative derivatives from his life. Since the first derivatives of a man's life are his thoughts and ideas, thoughts and ideas are primary property. Since action is based on primary property, ideas, actions are owned as well. This is referred to as liberty. Halambos reportedly took his own ideas to ridiculous lengths, claiming a property right in his own ideas and requiring his students not to repeat them, dropping a nickel in a fund box every time he used the word liberty as a royalty to the descendants of Thomas Paine, the alleged inventor of the word liberty and changing his original name from Joseph Andrew Halambos, Jr., presumably, to Andrew Joseph Halambos, to avoid infringing his identically named father's rights to the name. No one would even be able to build a house without getting permission from the heirs of the first protohuman who left the caves and built a hut. No one could use a variety of life-saving techniques, chemicals or treatments without obtaining permissions of various lucky rich descendants. No one would be able to boil water to purify it or use pickling to preserve foods unless he is granted license by the originators or their distant heirs of such techniques. Wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that I'm not at liberty to say the word liberty without paying the descendants of Thomas Paine for the privilege, because he somehow homesteaded the word liberty? Well, I think we can all agree, that's a bunch of f***ing I, I think it's important to put copyright in context. I mean, in fact, as usual, we Brits are to blame, because we formalised the first kind of modern copyright law in 1710, the Statute of Queen Anne. And that worked well enough at the time, but the problem is we're still using that. We're using 18th century laws for 21, 21st century technology. And the 18th century laws are based on the idea that knowledge is scarce and that books are scarce, and therefore you must protect them. Whereas we now know on the internet, knowledge is not scarce and information is not scarce. And so to apply the laws of scarcity to something that can be copied infinitely necessarily causes problems. And things like the, as you mentioned, the text and data mining, we are being stopped from discovering new drugs. We're being stopped from discovering new medical treatments that could save thousands of lives because of copyright. Yes, folks, intellectual property is not useful. It is immoral, and perhaps more to the point, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so... I hope that clarifies some of the problems that are coming up with regards to the way that intellectual property, intellectual monopoly, is being handled, as always, in favor of the giant corporations and against the average Joe. And no better example of that than what is happening right now online in the fight against 
EU Article 13 and all of these draconian internet censorship rules, regulations, and uh, legislation that's coming down the pipe as a result of the false intellectual property regime. And what better, what better instantiation of that? What better, what better way to encapsulate that than by playing, yes, I'm going to do it, playing the thought crime chord. Oh, are you ready, folks? We looked at the D major, we looked at the D minor, we looked at the D sus4, but what if we play that open E, we're going to get a... Oh, there it is, the D sus2! Ah, thought crime! Oh, doesn't it feel liberating? I mean, yes, this video's probably been flagged by now, but still, (laughs) I hope you're not watching it on YouTube. (laughs) But there we go, there's the thought crime, the D sus2. Of course, it's patently ridiculous, the idea that anyone can own a chord. And you know that, and I know that. But strangely enough, the internet is still learning how to suss such things, if you'll forgive the pun. And in fact, that be sus too is so liberating. That thought crime is so freeing that I saw fit to write a little song about this. And I hope you enjoy it. It goes a little something like this.
you like it. <laughs> if you do, spread it around. And in fact, I、uh, think I might have a more fully developed version of that song on this summer's upcoming Summer Truth Music podcast. So stay tuned for that. Anyhow,、uh, <laughs> I hope, I trust that I've made an important point today and one that affects us all.、Uh, whether you create content online or you simply like to imbibe it online, either way, this does affect you and it is an extremely Extremely important topic. Lots of resources and links in the show notes for this episode. I hope you'll go to corporatereport.com and check it out. Until next time, this is James Corbett of corporatereport.com.